This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we are bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So if you hear some horns and sirens behind us, that's why. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions. So send them to us, pwradio at publishersweekly.com, or you could tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's P-U-B Weekly W-K-L-Y Radio. Today we'll be talking with best-selling novelist Jane Ann Krentz, who's written over 120 books under a wow. variety of names. Then our own Mark Rotella will tell us what's hot in the field of nonfiction about music. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So number one on the fiction bestseller list yes. is the new book by Nora Roberts, mm-hmm. Whiskey Beach. Uh, Nora Roberts is one of those household names around here. We call her No Row. Uh, really? Oh, great. <laughs> which I possibly shouldn't admit on the air, but she's she's just one of those people you can you can refer to by a nickname. Everybody knows who you mean. Sure. And uh, she's she's been around for quite a while, and um, they uh, the the annual meeting of the Romance Writers of America give out these awards called the the Rita yeah. Awards. And she oh, is right. notorious for winning them in the, the category of fiction with a romantic element, which is, um, in some ways, it's sort of the Nora Roberts category. Her books are not necessarily romances uh-huh. in the sense that we do sometimes cover them in the romance section in Publishers Weekly, but they have romantic elements while also having a lot of what people come to you know, straight up fiction mm-hmm. for to regular novels. Really? I, I've always thought of her as, as just a romance novelist. Well, she, she writes with a lot of depth and this is one of those places where uh, genre categories are sometimes seen as indicators of quality so when you think when you hear romance you might think one of those skinny little harlequin Mm -hmm. novellas that don't necessarily have a lot of substance and so calling it fiction or women's fiction Mm -hmm. or contemporary fiction with a romantic element is a way of saying this is a good book it's not just that genre stuff it's good Good fiction. Sure. Uh, so I, I would call these romance, but I wanted to read uh, the first page, actually, yeah. of Whiskey Beach, which is uh, the one that just hit number one on our okay. fiction bestseller list and which got a starred review in Publishers Weekly because with an author like this who is so well-known, he was a bestseller many, many times over, mm-hmm. an award winner many mm-hmm. times over, people sometimes think of her as just a name that you, you, you read a Nora Roberts book because you've read a lot of other Nora Roberts right. books. And I wanted to, to give a sense of what it is about her work that pulls people in. Oh, great. Okay, good. Through the chilly curtain of sleet, In the intermittent wash of the great light on the jutting cliff to the south, the massive silhouette of Bluff House loomed over Whiskey Beach. It faced the cold, turbulent Atlantic like a challenge. I will last as long as you. Standing three sturdy and indulgent stories above the rough and rugged coast, it watched the roll and slap of waves through the dark eyes of windows, as it had, in one incarnation or another, for more than three centuries." The little stone cottage, now housing tools and garden supplies, spoke to its humble beginnings, to those who'd braved the fierce and fickle Atlantic to forge a life on the stony ground of a new world. Dwarfing those beginnings, the spread and rise of golden sand walls and curving gables, the generous terraces of weathered local stone, sang to its heyday. It survived storm, neglect, careless indulgence, dubious taste, the booms, and the busts, scandal, and righteousness. It's pretty descriptive. I mean, yeah, it's, this it is... really sets, sets the tone in ways that one, you're, you're right, one wouldn't think uh, if something were labeled romance. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this, it's a this whole is... different access to a book than I would have thought. It, it, this is, yeah, this is not a book that's starting out. Uh, the romance is actually introduced very slowly mm. in here. It's, uh, it's not a book that starts out 
uh, just throwing two people right. together. And, and a lot of romance is very character focused. And yeah. here she starts out setting the scene. And it's also got an unusual hero. Uh, if I can quote from the PW Review, Eli Landon is suspected of murdering his adulterous wife, mm. but there's no evidence to convict him. So needing to escape his old life, he returns to his family's ancestral home of Bluff House along New England's Whiskey Beach. Mm. And there he falls in love with the house's caretaker. Um, so this is, you know, we've, we've got a suspected murderer as a romantic hero, which is always an, an, an interesting choice. And right, it, sure. because the, as the reader is going along, we don't necessarily know who to believe. I mean, he yeah. certainly doesn't think of himself as a killer, but maybe he's wrong. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of suspense element and a lot of atmosphere to it. And this is what keeps Nora Roberts coming back to the top of the bestseller list. And I noticed one other thing. You're holding up the book right now. It seems thicker than one would think a, a, a book. How many pages is it? It's 496 pages is it's, the official page count. And yeah. that's, that's pretty hefty. And yeah. it's, you know, th- it's a hardcover. It right. costs twenty seven ninety five. dollars right. this, is, this is a solid piece of writing. Wow. Oh, fantastic. Well, let me take a look at the um, nonfiction list. And, mm-hmm. and debuting at number seven, I'm going to jump around a little bit here. We have the Athena Doctrine, How Women and the Men Who Think Like Them Will Rule the Future. This is by John Gerzema and Michael uh, D'Antonio from Josie Bass. And this is, uh, we say, women often criticized in the workplace for their softer, more compassionate approach for management are now seeing the same values move to the forefront of the business world. So we've been seeing a few books, uh, quite a few books on this and on the bestseller list, focusing specifically on women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of articles. So this, this debuts at number seven. Now, but, that, that's interesting. Yeah. I want to come back to that a little bit because, uh, as as we say, women get criticized for this all the time, but now that men are doing it, it's okay. Right. <laughs> so right. I, I feel like that's not necessarily striking a blow against yeah, sexism right. here. No, no, you're right. I, I, what the author says is that masculine traits like aggression and control are seen as less effective than the feminine, the author's right, values of collaboration and sharing credit. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, so, I'll be interested to see whether women actually get credit for this. Right. Yes. And written by two men. So, mm-hmm. well, so we'll see. But, but you know what? It, people are buying it at number seven. That, that's selling a lot of copies right now. That's true. And then we have Mehmet Oz's daughter, Dr. Oz's daughter, Daphne Oz. Uh, this is her second book. The first was a cookbook. And this is called Relish. An Adventure in Food, Style, and Everyday Fun. Now, this debuts at number 10. Uh, Her first book uh, was a bestseller. It was called The Dorm Room Diet, written, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, when she was a college student. And uh, she talked about how even though you're living in dorms, you don't necessarily have to gain the freshman 15, as it were. Uh, And and she also has her own daytime talk show called The Chew. Uh, and, And so here she talks about with food and recipes, images of the real world. It's a book, it's a lifestyle book, more more than a cookbook or anything mm-hmm. like that. So that's at number 10. And then at number two, we're just going, uh, well, back to the top of the uh, list. Uh, Leadership, A Call for Americans to Finally Stand Up and Lead by Orrin Woodward and Oliver DeMille. And this is what they say is a provocative uh, business parable for troubled times in, in our in our country. So what does that mean? Well, provocative business. Well, yeah, parable. well, this is this is this is the uh, the book description from the publisher, and we do not have a review of this book, but it's it's talking about our nation's economy and and mm-hmm. and the, and drawing similarities to how businesses are run. So, and this is number two um, on our list, and that's what I have for nonfiction. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We've been giving you a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. And we also want to uh, maybe continue our trend of making predictions since that worked so well yeah. last time. Let's give it a shot. Let's, Let's give it a it. shot. Okay, What's good. coming out this week that we think is, is going to hit the list? Right. I'm here, this is just going to this is going to just blow everyone away. This is it. This is going to jump to the top five. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Did I say the top five? All right. I'm David Sedaris's new book, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. That's David a David Sed- Sedaris this title. This is a David Sedaris <laughs> title. This is a one-day laydown, which means we uh, did not get the book review. Often uh, publishers will do this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to build up anticipation, as it were. And they're they're looking to sell this. They, the first printing announcement is uh, eight hundred thousand copies. That's so, a lot of books. Uh, so this is coming out. Um, I think it just came out yesterday. So yeah. So I think that one is going to be that one's going to be on there. And I uh, I'm going to also predict the hit by David Baldacci, which Baldacci is is big a, a big name. Yes, he is, hits the list fairly often. I'm also going to put that in the top five in fiction. Oh, Ooh, wow! I oh, am. wow! Look at us with the top five. Yeah, now. well, let let <laughs> let's see. Next week we'll find out whether we're right. right. But they're printing five hundred thousand copies of that. I mean, it, imagine just for a moment not only the expense of printing 500,000 copies of a book, but the expense of storing it, of shipping it, sending it out to all the bookstores, making sure it gets where it needs to be on time, the kind of publicity push that they put behind us. And if you ride the subway, you see ads for David Baldacci books. Gosh, you're right. Yeah, it's true. So so, uh, publishers really invest Mm -hmm. in books like this, and they only do that if they expect a return on their investment. So uh, even though it's $27.99, they're expecting that half a million copies of it are going to be sold uh, for $28 a piece, which is not such a bad thing, really. Even even after the bookstores take their cut and the author gets their cut, that's probably going to do a tidy little bit of business for Grand Central Publishing. So I think that that's going to be in our top five fiction list next week. All right, good. Oh, I can't wait to uh, revisit this next week then. Yeah, we've, we've placed our bets. <laughs> right, right. So uh, another nonfiction book is uh, Frozen in Time, an epic story of survival and a modern quest for lost heroes of World War II by M- Mitchell Zukov. And uh, another One Day Lay Down, uh, and this is another, it's, uh, it seems like people really like World War II era. I think still big. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a big draw that era that war and and this is a, another story of survival so so you have a lot of elements by Mitchell Zukov uh in this book and, and I think this is going to do pretty well all right so do you want to put a number on it or you just think it's going to do pretty well it's we'll, it's will we, will we leave it vague no predictions you know for what? this one let's put it in the top 15 just because I'm Ooh. feeling lucky all right all right, I'm I'm taking notes oh here. Oh my gosh! I'm okay, notes. All we're right, going to come right. back. We have five, five, <laughs> damn, top fifteen. <laughs> all right. Anything else that you wanted well, to to call out? Oh yes, we're going to see uh, uh, cooked Michael Pollan's new book, Finding Ourselves in the Kitchen, and in this book, he 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 pretty much deconstructs. You know, he 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 talks about where our food comes from. Uh, he explains uh, how grilling with fire, braising, bra- baking bread, and fermented woods have impacted our health and culture. So he talks about basically what we eat and how we eat it and wh- how that affects our bodies. So. And certainly the omnivorous dilemma is is yeah. and remains a, a sort of household name. Yes, exactly. You know, he's, he's, he's out there and he's got a big following. Right, exactly. And he did in defensive food as well. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think I think this is going to do pretty well, uh, and I'm, I'm not even going to venture to guess where on the list, um, but he's got a strong following. Yeah, definitely. And we gave it a starred review in Publishers we Weekly, right. so yep. I, I think that's uh, I think it's got a good chance of getting him some more fans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he talks about how fermented foods like kimchi can promote and encourage the growth of good bacteria mm-hmm. in your in your stomach. And As um, anyone who's eaten yogurt while taking antibiotics can tell oh, you. Oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. true. It's true. So he, he really breaks this down. So I think it'll be informational just as his uh, previous books have been. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that one. So these are all books that are coming out next week. Right. And uh, we'll take a look at our bestseller list next week and see where they come out. Oh, can't wait. <laughs> and, you know, we may give them a little while to, to see if they appear because sometimes we get our bestseller information on Wednesdays. So if a book came out on Monday, it may not have had a full week right, to, this is true. to, uh, to get its, its numbers up. This is true. So, and it could also see what happens in any given news day. Uh, that's certainly true. This week uh, to see what, what books. And this is kind of interesting that you know, we, could, we could look at too to see how news uh, moves books uh, one way or another. Sure. I mean, if something new came out factually about World War II, uh, or if we were suddenly hearing something about some of the countries that were involved in World War II, then those books might take a jump on the list. Yes, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. 
And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jane Ann Krentz will tell us what it's like to write books in many genres and under many different names. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jane Ann Krentz on the line under her own name and a number of other pseudonyms, including Jane Castle and Amanda Quick. She has written over 120 works of romance, romantic suspense, romantic fantasy, futuristic romance, and women's fiction. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So I'm really curious, from a writer's perspective, what's it like writing under these various names? Well, it's a little weird. I think um, I, I do not advise this as a career path for aspiring writers everywhere. It sort of evolved, um, unbe- un- unaided by me. I somehow wound up with a bunch of different names. It actually happens a lot if you survive long enough in popular fiction, mm-hmm. because when you move through genres it's common to take another name because the genre that you used to write, maybe those readers don't want to read that type of book that you're now writing and vice versa. So the names have actually become a way of letting my readers know what to expect when they pick up one of my books. Mm -hmm. And if you pick me up as Jane Ann Krenz, you get contemporary romantic suspense. If you pick me up as Amanda Quick, which is what this book is out, the book that's out now, The Mystery Woman is Under, my Amanda Quick name, you're going to get a novel of 19th century historical romantic suspense. Right. So this is, it's really about branding, I suppose, is the term we use these days. Well, that's, that's the new term. When I first started out, it was just, <laughs> it was just the way people did things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does set up some problems for the writer, which is why I don't heartily recommend this, um, because even though I've been writing under these three names for some time now, it's so common to go to a signing event and have a 30%, 40% of the people at the event not know me under the other names. Oh, um, no kidding. Yeah, so it, it, that's why I say it's not the best career path. It's just the one I wound up with. and <laughs> it, it, and works for, it works for me, but that's about as far as I can go with it. In, in terms of advice, that's as far as I can go with it. And, and when you're signing books, do you, uh, do you, have to, uh, do, do you remember which name to, uh, to sign under? I have messed that up a few times. Um, <laughs> one one trick I have developed is make sure the book is all. I always open the book to the title page where I'm staring at my own name and <laughs> or the whatever name I'm writing under, and I just sign right into that. After a while, that that kicks in. Now you've also written under a variety of names that you no longer use, like Stephanie James or Amanda Glass or Jane Taylor. How do you decide which ones to stick with and which ones to I don't know stop using? You know, it's not a decision I make willingly. It's usually because of a contract change. A new publisher mm. wants a new name. It's always been a pragmatic decision based, made for business reasons as much as anything else. I can tell you that the Amanda Glass name went down the tubes because, because the book I wrote under it nearly killed my career, which oh. is another reason for taking a new name. Uh. <laughs> when, you're to, oh, wow. when you're trying to get going, get some traction again under, under um, a new name, it, sometimes you just have to drop the old one. It can be bad baggage. So how, how does this work? For our, for our listeners who might not be that familiar with the ins and outs of publishing, does your publisher come to you or your agent come to you and say, hey, that last book kind of tanked. Maybe you should try and start fresh? Yeah, that's pretty much how it happens. Either that or you figure it out on your own and say, I want to you know, start from scratch and start building a new audience. Um, sometimes going out under a new name that doesn't carry any old baggage is easier to launch mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. trying to overcome um, people's opinions of, you know, the, the previous name or something. It's, <laughs> like I said, it's a very complicated decision. It's never made, never made lightly. I, 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 um, I'm hoping now not to have to change anymore. Every time I try to drop a name is when I actually get into trouble now. I've got three <laughs> names going, and the idea was always I would stick with the one that worked. Mm-hmm. Except and they're all working. Thanks to my lovely editor at Putnam Berkeley, Leslie Geldman, all three are working, and now I'm kind of on the writing the tigers. <laughs> now, for a while, you were keeping your names very separate, as you said. Each one was associated with a different genre of writing, but then you began to collaborate with yourself. So, for the Dreamlight trilogy and the Looking Glass trilogy, for each series, you wrote three books under the three different names of Jane Ann Krentz, Jane Castle, and Amanda Quick. Um, how did that work, and what led you to do it that way? Yeah, I find this fascinating. 
Well, the story arc went through all three names and all three time periods. Remember, each name is associated with a different futuristic landscape or a mm -hmm. contemporary landscape or historical landscape. So the plot arc went through all three books. But I hit a wall on that, too, because it turns out that people who love me as Amanda Quick in my historical landscape don't necessarily want to have to read futuristic to find out how the story ended. Right. So there was a limit to how far that worked. And I respect that. I'm just as guilty of it as everybody else. There are writers I read, love them in contemporary, but I don't read them if they go write a Western. You mm -hmm. know, I just don't, right. and it's not any logical reason, except that I think we sometimes, as writers, because we move so easily between genres usually, we sometimes forget how important the fictional landscape is to readers. Mm -hmm. And if you are writing, for example, the classic American Private Eye, you want that noir setting. You want the, the, set, the Boston that Robert Parker gives you, or you want the L.A. confidential look. You want a certain look and a certain feel, and it's all about the landscape at that point. Take that story and put it in a small town or on a tropical island, and it's not going to fly, it's, or right. at least not the same way. So what the Three Names has taught me is the importance of the fictional landscape to the reader, and it's because when the reader walks into that world, they already know so much about it. They're so familiar with it because this is their world that they read frequently. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist Jane Ann Krentz about her experiences writing under many different names in many different genres. Now, tell us a little bit about your newest book, which is uh, under the Amanda Quick name, The Mystery Woman. The Mystery Woman. Well, this is set in Victorian London, mm -hmm. and there's a real psychic twist to it. The, the wonderful thing about Victorian London, of course, is that they actually took the whole paranormal psychic thing very seriously. So setting a plot there that has a paranormal or a psychic twist is, is a perfect fit, and I just love to do that. And the mystery woman is um, yet another psychic who's been making her living, and uh, half, half the people, including the hero, think she's a total fraud. And she works undercover now as a paid companion, which is one of those delightful situations, again, unique to Victorian London, mm -hmm. in which the heroine can move in society without ever being noticed because she's just the paid companion. She's mm. just that lady in gray sitting in the corner and observing. And when you think about it, it's the perfect cover for a private eye. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. So that's how she's making her living now. And she gets involved with a case that involves um, ancient Egyptian artifacts and a mad scientist who's trying to revive his dead lover with an ancient Egyptian in formula for reviving the dead and a very sexy uh, former spy for the Crown. Mm -hmm. That's another thing about Victorian London. They had all these great spies running around. This is, you know, <laughs> uh, James Bond was not not new. There's a long history of spycraft from uh, in from London, so it makes a great setting for that too. And how did you come up with this with this character, this this woman? How did you conceive of her? Well, I'm fascinated with women who my characters, in fact, in almost all the books are respectable women who are hanging on by their toenails to mm. respectability. They're just always trying to make ends meet, trying to survive, trying to um, live in a world that didn't provide a lot of opportunities for women to make a living. One of the fascinating tidbits doesn't really play so much into this story, but it's kind of a side thing that I found fascinating was what the advent of telegraphy, telegraphing the telegraph business and mm -hmm. typing did for women. They, it opened up a whole suite of new jobs that had never existed for respectable women before. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. a huge leap forward for womankind. And, and the reasoning behind it was fascinating. They thought that typing, that, that act the fingers that you use with typing and telegraphy, resembled piano playing which was a perfectly respectable feminine <laughs> occupation. So yes, it made sense that they could do this work. It was, <laughs> I, just, I just love that uh, little well, tidbit of information. Well, you know, I, I know that early in your career you studied library science, and it seems like with your various novels, which are set in different time periods, you, you, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you do quite a bit of research. And how, how has that experience served your writing, and how do you use libraries today? Well, first of all, I have a 
there is no ex-librarians, right? There are only former librarians. Right, right. <laughs> it's like the Marines, <laughs> it's right? It's like the Marines. Yeah, there are no ex-librarians. Um, and I love the research. And the, what, the reason I love the research is because that's usually where I get the best plot twists. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the value it has for me. For example, when I did a book in which the uh, heroine was a, a lady photographer, another big thing in the late 19th century, um, I was looking for an innovative way to kill somebody off in the storyline. And it turns out that everybody did their own developing, you know, film developing in the old days. And cyanide was a common piece, uh, a common uh, piece of equipment in the, or form of whatever, chemical in the, in the private labs. Mm-hmm. So almost every house who had a photographer in it had cyanide in it. So things like mm-hmm. that that pop out make it give you a wonderful idea for a plot twist that only come when you do the research. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist Jane Ann Krentz. And going back to romance, you once said that romance is one of the most enduring of fiction genres because it addresses the values of family and human emotional bonds. Can you talk more on that? Yes, I think it is the core genre for all of the genres. It, when you think about it, you know, the bottom line is if you don't have that relationship between two people, you never have a family, and if you never have a family, you never have much in the way of a civilization. It really is the, the, you know, the founding core genre. All the other genres, as far as I'm concerned, are spin-offs from that one, but of course, I view it from a somewhat a biased angle, but I do think that people return to the romance genre because the values and the virtues that it upholds are so fundamental to so many women. Things like, you know, courage and honor and loyalty and determination and and the healing power of love. These are vital emotions and vital core values and they're everywhere in the romance genre. Mm. I think actually, frankly, they're everywhere in popular fiction. It's, those values are how we, popular fiction is how we actually pass those values along from one generation to the next, as far as I'm concerned. Sure, that makes sense. And do you feel like you're writing for multiple generations? And who, who do you think of as your target audience for these different books? Definitely multiple generations. Just as multiple generations read mystery or any of the other genres, um, the romance genre is, has a wide appeal. And I think there's a point in everyone's life, every woman's life particularly, when she wants to read that story, but she'll come back to it again and again because it does uphold her own values. And, and I don't think that writers who, who fly in the face of those values will survive very long in mm-hmm. the business. It really, you are writing for an audience that responds to those elemental elements in the book. There was a 2002 interview with you that I, I found in um, Romantic Times book reviews uh, where Tara Josamano, who was interviewing you, said that your 1986 novel, Sweet Starfire, started the futuristic romance genre, which is still, you know, pretty small. Um, and I was wondering if I was wondering if you if you feel that that's accurate, that you were you were the progenitor there. I, I probably was, although I think I was at that time, I think I had read Anne McCaffrey, who had actually done something earlier. Mm-hmm. A few years earlier, um, called Restoree, and that that was a very influential book. But it nearly killed her career, I guess, because she moved on to dragons, and it nearly <laughs> killed my car- it nearly killed my career. And that's when I moved on to Amanda Quick. That it was actually writing the futuristics, which really tanked all those first three futuristics <laughs> that really tanked. That taught me I could do historical romance, which I had always avoided because I had majored in history and I knew too much about it. Right. Right. Hard to fantasize. So when I realized I was facing career disaster with the first futuristics, <laughs> oh, wow. I, I did something I would advise to any other aspiring writers, which is step back, strip away the fictional landscape, and look at the core story. Right. And once you've done that, your eyes are open to where you can move that core story. And I, as soon as I did that, I realized, okay, this is basically a historical romantic adventure there's a place for that, Jane, and it isn't in the future. <laughs> oh, wow. But there are still people writing futuristic romance now. I mean, I, I cover romance novels for Publishers Weekly, and I do see them come across my desk every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's still other people out there combining romance and science fiction. I think it, it will always be there, but it's always probably going to be more of a, a, a smaller market, a niche market. And I'm still having great fun with it. I write, 
I, I still write those stories under my Jane Castle name. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think the genre does exist, and it certainly there's certainly more of it than it was when I uh, nearly killed my own career. But, um, but I, I do think that the act of recognizing your core story, and every author has one. I'm sorry, you know, everything thinks of reinventing the wheel, but the truth is, if you read an author over a course of a career, you can identify that core story, and it behooves the author to recognize it, I think, early on, if for no other reason than to be able to save a career that's going down the tubes. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist Jane Ann Krentz about her various uh, nom de plumes and her writing. And you've mentioned a few times now about how certain books almost killed your career. And it's hard for, for us to imagine that right now. <laughs> but I, I, so, so give us, a, if you could, just like a timeline, uh, especially for me and for some of our listeners, about when this might have happened and how you resuscitated your career. How and I was it really, yeah, right. <laughs> the sad part is I've actually had to do it more than once. I mean, this, this, is, this is career survival 101. And, and knowing the core story is the key to survival. But, um, the futuristics tanked back in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And so in the night, I think it was 1990 or, gosh, last century. It's horrible to think about that now. Um, last <laughs> century, back in the day, um, is when I started at the Amanda Quick career. And it, what happened when I, took the, when I did the futuristics is that I had done them under my Krentz name, my Jane Ann Krentz name, which is what took the hit in terms of sales. So nobody wanted to buy anything by Jane Ann Krentz. So my brilliant, my brilliant agent managed to sell me under a totally new name, Amanda Quick, to uh, and start and relaunch a career for which I will always be forever grateful to the Axelrod Agency for that bit. I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I had he had to do it again <laughs> at another point for Jane Castle. But after a t- after a certain amount of time passed, you know, uh, people forget. And I was able to then revive the Krentz career mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. contemporaries. And then when I went back into the futuristics, because I really do love that, that whole genre, I, I went back to the name I was actually born with and managed to lose at the start of my career, which was Jane Castle, which is a pretty mm-hmm. good name for a romance writer. Yeah, it's a great name. <laughs> it is. It's true. <laughs> Another piece of advice, never sign a document or a contract that takes your name away. Mm. Things you learn the hard way if you... <laughs> in the writing business. Well, I'm sure that our listeners who are aspiring authors are taking lots of notes right now <laughs> right. On, on how to keep their careers alive and how to resuscitate them when they're ailing. Um, and you had mentioned, uh, again, in that 2002 interview that you had actually read a lot of science fiction for fun, and I was wondering what you read for pleasure now. I really enjoy mystery. That's probably my favorite other genre, mm-hmm. and mystery and suspense and thrillers. Although I've got, I'm squeamish, and I have trouble. So many modern thrillers are so gory now, and that I have a problem with that. I have a problem with the super gore factor. So mm-hmm. that kind of limits what I can read in suspense. But um, that's my quintessential genre could be summed up by my formative years reading Nancy Drew. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> wow. as far as I'm concerned, that, that was a, a perfect blend of romantic suspense. I, I know that there's a market for, for clean romance, as they say, romance without too much sex in it. I wonder if there's also a market for clean thrillers, which would be thrillers without too much blood in them. Boy, let me add it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it probably does exist, and it's probably called romantic suspense, which is what I'm trying to That's write. That's true. Mm. Mm-hmm. And but there's a lot of great work being done in that field right now. I think so, yes. And I think one of the things you can one, what you can say about romantic suspense is that it doesn't get too awful in terms of torture and gore and the core story does involve a relationship which is successful i.e. a romance and comes mm-hmm. out at the end okay other than I that I'm, I'm good with serial killers I'm good with crazy mad scientists I'm good with murders you name it all right. Well, we've been talking with Jane Ann Krentz, and you can find The Mystery Woman, which is her newest book under the Amanda Quick pen name, in stores right now. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mark is going to tell us what's hot in the world of nonfiction about music. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today our quote-unquote guest editor is our very own Mark Rotella, who handles nonfiction book reviews, and specifically he covers books about music, among other topics. Mark, what's hot in the music world right now? Well, there's a few things. As is always the case this time of year, we do have your biographies or memoirs by musicians. And it's kind of interesting how they all seem to come about in uh, groups by maybe genre or by uh, decade. Mm -hmm. So uh, the two that, that have topped my list are... Anyone Who Had a Heart, My Life in Music by Burt Bacharach, mm -hmm. and My Way, an autobiography by Paul Anka, which debuted at number 17 on the bestseller list last week and is, I think, number 22 this week. And I, I'm kind of partial. He wrote it with a writer, music writer named David Dalton. And I'm, I'm kind of partial to, to this book in ways because it's an era that I'm very familiar with and really liked and have written on which is basically the 50s and 60s, which is kind of the the end of one rock and roll era going into a new one. Mm -hmm. And that new one was, was basically in 63, 64, the Beatles and right. the British invasion. So you had a lot of bands who pretty much didn't write their own music. I mean, they were you had a lot of doo-wop bands. You had a lot of uh, the great American uh, songbooks. So you had great singers mm -hmm. like Frank Sinatra, who, who didn't write his own songs, uh, Dean Martin, uh, and so many others. So you had that those singers who sang the great American songbook and those who were you know, like, like early rock and roll. And then here is Paul Anka, who is from Toronto, Canada, and... I think it was must have been 16 years old. He's someone in, who I, we interviewed him for the magazine, and he wanted to be a journalist, a newspaper reporter. And his father got him a gig at I think it was the Toronto Star or something, some some newspaper where he uh, worked his way up from delivering newspapers to working in a newsroom. Mm -hmm. um, doing you know menial tasks but really what he wanted to do was was write and he started writing poetry and he started writing songs and he wrote this one song his first song diana which was about a uh, girl who is a couple years older than him or maybe a year older than him in high school and uh he just had a, a way with lyric a, a way with uh, putting it to music and he took a trip down to new york city went to one of the music music place songwriting places there they heard his song and they said all right kid Call your parents. You've got a week. We're, we're hiring you as a songwriter, and you're, you're going to record this song. Wow. And talking to him on the phone, and, and this book kind of reflects a very genuineness and how he came to songwriting, into, into music writing. And, and I really enjoyed this book. And he is, uh, I think, probably best known for writing the song My Way, which was a right. Frank, he wrote it for Frank Sinatra at the end of Frank Sinatra's career. Uh, when Frank Sinatra once told him, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire from singing. And uh, he had always promised Frank Sinatra that he was going to write a song for him. But, but he pretty much only wrote like you know, rock and roll music for younger people. And he thought, yeah, why well, Sinatra is not going to be interested in anything I write? And Sinatra said, you never wrote me that song, kid. And uh, he said, so he went back and it was a song based on an, a French uh, pop song at the time. And he heard the music and he heard the lyrics and he said, this is a really good beat. And it happened to be owned by, recorded by someone on his label. So he asked to buy the rights, which he did. And he wrote the lyrics for Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra recorded it. And history is there. So, so moving on, the other one is Burke Bacharach, who has written music for so many people and is just a really well-known songwriter. And in his book, Anyone Who Had a Heart, uh, My Life and Music, uh, we didn't review as favorably as Paul Anka's. We, we felt that he kind of um, short-tripped some of his career, kind of you know was, was very light-footed around it, and didn't give the details, especially his daughter who was ill, who died, I believe, young. But that's, a, that's such a hard thing to write about. Yeah, but sometimes with with certain memoirs, especially rock musicians or or people, you know, any celebrity, there's going to be a tendency to drop names and to to use people's names or or studio names instead of going deeper to see what it was really like to write a song, which I think was Paul Anka did, and not really right. to take anything away from Burt Bacharach's book right now, but because I think I, I think is going to have a big audience for it uh, that's coming up in May. 
so you have those two books. And and another one coming out is Billy Ray Cyrus, Hillbilly Heart, country music singer from a different era, mm-hmm. uh, from a different generation. And in it, he also talks about his his daughter, who's uh, even got a bigger name than he does now, Miley. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, we just reviewed that, and we like the book. Uh, we, we say that throughout it, Cyrus ends up with a rather self-evident lesson. The most meaningful things in life are the ones you have to work the hardest for. And so he chronicles his roller coaster life in his early adolescence. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. My co-host, Mark Rotella, is telling us about nonfiction books about music, including memoirs that are coming out fairly soon or just out now. Now, you said something about this being a time of year when a lot of music books come out. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it seems to me that some of the biggest, two biggest seasons, well, this is one of the biggest ones, which is the spring season. So it's in time for summer reading. You've got books coming out in April, May, June, your spring list kind of gearing up for the summer and this is when when publishers do a big push uh for books and this is when i i tend to see a lot of books uh coming out by big name authors and that's followed and actually is probably the other season is september october right traditionally another large publishing uh two three months september october november and we've seen like i said we've seen in previous seasons even bigger names than these but or maybe I, I shouldn't say bigger, but more more recent and maybe more rock and roll, maybe seventies, eighties uh, rock and rollers. One other book that I want to mention, and this is by Richard Hell. Uh, Richard Hell started a band called Television, kind of a post punk band, uh, and then he's formed a band called the Voidoids. And he was this uh, teenager from. Kentucky, I believe, who decided to uh, move out to New York and kind of take on this post-punk image or this punk image, I guess, at the time. Uh, Changed his name to Richard Hell and kind of formed these art bands, these bands that may not have had a big group following, but a really dedicated fan following. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he came out with this book. I love the title called I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. And I remember in the uh, mid 80s going to a bar called uh, Mona's and he would be in the back of the bar. This was on Avenue B Mm -hmm. between uh, I think it was 13th and 14th. And you 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 who grew up in New York uh, might might know this. This is sounding very familiar. Okay, yeah. good. And I he actually, would be in the back and he would be playing uh, pool. And, but people right. would know that this is where he hung out. And he was just, just kind of, a, it seemed to be a creature of the streets. And everyone just really idolized him, but kind of kept their distance, just saying, hey, he's just a cool guy. Anyway, and this book was, I, I think, a pretty, really well done book mm-hmm. as well. And I, just, just going back, you know, I, I, I've been talking a lot about memoirs or autobiographies coming out by pop stars sure i haven't been seeing as much histories uh we we did have uh paul eli on talking about bach uh, so this history of bach reinventing bach right and other than that i'm not finding as 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 many sweeping histories as, as that 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 encapsulate a long life and many different aspects of his of someone's music but there is one by michael straithguth by it books called outlaw Waylon, Willie, Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville. And this is about Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, and Chris Christofferson. And this was a, a book that it says, in February 1976, our review says, Waylon Jennings, Jesse Coulter, Willie Nelson, and the Temple Glazier, and the Glazier Brothers release Wanted, The Outlaws. And creating this was a record. And this was the very first country album to sell a million copies. And this was at a time in Nashville where... Nashville was changing from Grand Ole Opry. It was kind of finding a new identity mm-hmm. to these kind of rougher edge uh, men and some women who came in here to try and create it. And he tells a story, a really good story, all along the backdrop, uh, the race riots in the uh, 60s and 70s in, in Vietnam and how people were listening to music. I, I mean, you know, Vietnam vets were listening to this kind of renegade music. People from the South from, who listened to country say, we're not listening to your Grand Ole Opry stuff, but listening to these like, kind of tough-imaged rocker or, or country 
country musicians. But I mean, I think that slip of the tongue there makes sense. Like they had a lot of in common with the rougher rocker image that's a good as point. well that yeah. was coming in around the same time. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> nice slip of the tongue. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, these, these, these things uh, creep in there for <laughs> yeah, a reason. Right, right. And, and, and you're right. And these are some of the uh, country uh, musicians who rockers themselves appreciate and will sure. name as uh, you know, among their idols. Mm-hmm. So... It's kind of, uh, you're absolutely right. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. My coworker, Mark Rotella, is telling us about music books. Now, you said that there haven't been a lot of books that are more of these retrospectives, mm-hmm. the, the larger nonfiction, that there's a lot of memoir and not so much being written in a kind of investigative mode. Yeah. Why, do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. You know, it's, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm also curious about, and sometimes I wonder how... You know, there are some people who say those books don't sell as much unless mm-hmm. you, you've got the trappings of a name or a big name, and that will kind of catapult the book beyond others. They are the kinds of books that publishing houses like to have on their list because, for the most part, they make good mid-list books that people can refer to. But in this age of, and we've talked about this before, mid-list books, it's kind of getting harder for big publishers to justify carrying books that don't have a big name, either author or subject attached to it. And I think people probably want a lot of those really, really gritty details that you were mentioning, the the difference between the Paul Anka and the Burt Bacharach, is that Anka was really willing to say, you know, here is my life laid bare. And that's the sort of thing we want from investigative books too, the tell-all. Exactly. And and we've got one, uh, Evelyn uh, McDonald, DeCapo's coming out, and this is next month, people. So uh, listeners, uh, it's called Queens of Noise, the real story of the runaways. So you got Joan Jett, Lita Ford, and some really great rocking you know, women. And, and this is a, a solid book on, on women rockers. And this looks like a pretty good book that she um, was able to interview the uh, remaining uh, band members of the runaways mm-hmm. for what, what seems to be a, a pretty honest and um, solid reporting book. Makes sense. Yeah. And uh, Torre just came out with a book last month called I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. And that's another one, another book that uh, he writes social commentary and he's right. a critical essayist on. He's a really good one to handle uh, Prince as a subject. And one book that, that kind of stands out for me in this uh, genre of, of history is uh, Lena and Serge, The Love Wars of Lena Prokofiev. And this is the wife of uh, Sergei Prokofiev, the composer, a uh, Russian composer. And this is written by Simon Morrison. And he talks about basically the, the life of Sergei Prokofiev and his wife, Lena. And Lena spoke out against the USSR, against you know, Russia's uh, political regime, and was in prison from 1948 to 1956. Meanwhile, you know, Prokofiev was able to, to compose music uh, outside of Russia. So anyway, this, this seems like a really good, this is one of those really solid histories that I think is good, I think will be big with classical musician readers, and, and even like readers of Russian history or early you know, right. 20th century history. Did I see that on one of our bestseller lists? I know it's ringing a bell for me. And I it, don't know if it made on the bestsellers, but it might have been on one of one of our uh, preferred lists or one of our favorite lists. But got it. you could be right. You know what? And that's something I should because it out. sounds it very be. interesting. Good. And oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. So then that we have a whole genre of books as told to. So these are, or at least interviews, like I should say, uh, interviews. And so they'll, they'll have something like, this is Nothing to Lose, The Making of Kiss, 1972 to 1975. So it's really conversations with the two Kiss band members uh, who are still associated with the band, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Mm-hmm. And, and this is talks with... Ted Nugent, or, or people who were around at the time. Uh, this is a, uh, another It book. And these books sell really well with fans uh, of that. And then there are books that and I've seen in the last year, coinciding with MTV's 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And this is, we've, we've been seeing a, a, quite a few books on MTV. And we, one like this, where the, the original DJs were interviewed for a book, and it talked, they talked about how uh, MTV was started, and they told stories, and, you know, and, you know, you know scooped insider dirt on, on, on one another to each other. And then there, I have this book called The Kennedy Chronicles. The Golden Age of MTV Through Rose-Colored Glasses, written by one of MTV's original uh, VJs, Kennedy, known as Kennedy. She was their token conservative uh, uh, commentary. She was the Republican. And in this book, she talks about, I don't know, 
dragging John Stewart to a strip club and making out in a coffin with uh, rocker Dave Navarro. And wow. so, so she's this is kind of a a, a fun tell all. She is currently a uh, DJ in Los Angeles. And is that also out now, or it's coming out? This is too? coming out in July. The other two MTV books, uh, MTV History, are already out. One just came out, and I, I've been surprised that I haven't seen uh, once they've come out. I haven't seen much of them uh, for something that was such a big, I, I, I think, changed music, changed how we listened or maybe watch music. I, I haven't seen as uh, that these books have kind of resonated with the public as much as I thought. And maybe it could be perhaps that they aren't great books. That may be it, but it may also be, I mean, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm in my mid-30s and I already feel like I'm too old for MTV. So uh, it it may just be that MTV had its day and now and its day it. is done. And maybe yeah. when its 20th anniversary came around, people were still more interested in it. But at this point, I don't ever hear anyone talking about MTV. I don't hear anyone say, I saw this on MTV the other day. Right, um, right. You know, I remember when all my high school friends were talking about MTV Unplugged. And that was kind of the last time it was a household name among people I oh, hang out right. with. So yeah, that's it, a good it may just be that its day is done. Sure. And and I just want to talk about one more book. And this is something more along the personal essay or the, or the memoir by uh, someone who uh, isn't a known entertainer. This is by Stacey Horn. It's called Imperfect Harmony, Finding Happiness, Singing with Others. And in this book, she talks about uh, how she sang in a community choir with the uh, Choral Society of Grace Church. This is in New York City. Mm-hmm. And this is the one place in her life that she was able to transcend her own life and and to be a part of a larger group and it was through singing and it was through music mm-hmm. through creating music with an amateur choir and it's just a very sweet book about that and uh again it's you know there's not a big name attached to it but it is about the uh the transformation that music can allow us Definitely. And I've I've sung with some choruses in my time, and it's always been a wonderful experience. It really is just one mm. of those things where you take a couple hours out of your day and there's nothing but music. And that can be a fabulous, necessary yeah, experience. That sounds wonderful. It is. So I would definitely great. like to take a look at that book. Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, lovely to have that tour of the music books coming out in all, all ends of the spectrum of both literary and musical. Well, thanks, Rose. It's good talking to you as always. (laughs) And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. So tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.